going to read 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through to 10, and that's on page 840 in the Red Pew Bible. Thanks, Bob. Okay, it's under the heading of Instructions to Timothy. The Spirit clearly says that in the later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachers come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and those who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is, the sum, is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labour and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all men, and especially of those who believe. Give thanks for that. Well, let's pray, shall we? Uh, Gracious Father, we thank you for the privilege of looking at your word. And we do ask that uh, you would give us spiritual insight and understanding uh, that we might live lives that are worthy of you. We pray for our children as they gather in Sunday school that you would be teaching them the great truths from your word, that they would come to a uh, real and living and personal faith uh, in our Lord and Saviour Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Hands up who sometimes worries about money. <clears throat> We've had a few things to worry about with money over the last couple of years, haven't we? Uh, the, uh, the global financial crisis, the GFC, I don't pretend to understand how that all happened, but it sounded like there was the, uh, it started off with the subprime mortgage issue, I think, you know, uh, financiers lend, lending out money to people who they knew couldn't afford to pay it back. And it sort of showed there was a cancer in the banking system in North America and perhaps also uh, in parts of uh, Europe. And uh, it uh, led to a, um, a situation where the, the, the stock exchange went into a nosedive. And you know what happens. When, but when someone starts shell, selling off shares, everyone else panics and they all start to sell off shares and uh, you get this, plu- this plummeting of the stock exchange and uh, the people who suffer are the people who are trying to live off their superannuation funds, aren't they? That's, that's the bottom line. And so uh, 
we all got a free lesson in economics. If you remember studying economics at school, John Maynard Keynes and so on, he would have been very proud to see all of the, uh, the governments pumping billions of, injecting billions of dollars into their economies to, uh, to stimulate spending and to produce the multiplier effect and keep industry running and so on. Uh, it was an economics lesson for us all. And they did that, of course, in order to avert a complete meltdown of the economies around the world. Well, we got through that and we could breathe a sigh of relief. Except now there's the Eurozone crisis. I don't know much about that, but I hear that countries like Ireland and Greece and Spain, are, they call them economic basket cases. And uh, the other economies in Europe are having to bail them out so that their economic woes don't spill over into the rest of Europe and spill over into the rest of the world and, and hit us. And what about the Aussie dollar? It's hit record high uh, value uh, over this year, hasn't it? It's uh, sitting most of the year above parity with the, uh, with the greenback. And that's fabulous. Have you, anyone travelled overseas this year? No. Yeah, Roy and Sue, you know, it's, did you have a great time spending up your money? You know, it's great if you're travelling overseas with the, the Aussie dollar doing so well. Anyone bought any plasma TVs from China this year? Great if you want to buy gadgets that are imported. But if you're a farmer, if you're trying to export your wheat or your, your wool, if you're a manufacturer trying to export... No, because your price, your price of your products now so high overseas, people aren't going to buy it. And then there's all of the complexities with the mining boom and so on. And what about the, the daily grind just to pay bills? How's your electricity bill looking these days? Switching over to solar? <laughs> Might be a good idea. Economically, the last couple of years have been, let's call them, interesting. Interesting times. And, you know, like it or not, money is something which affects us all every day of our lives. Uh, whether you're a student working down at McDonald's just to get a bit of extra cash so you can, uh, you know, have some go out with your friends, uh, or whether you're a, a family person who's trying to balance the family budget and pay off a mortgage, whether you're a retiree kind of keeping a close look on your super balance or struggling with pension issues, whatever stage of life you're at, money is something which is fundamental to the way that we live. Um, when you think about it, at its most basic level, what is money? It's basically a tool that we use in order to exchange goods and services. Um, the Bible has a few things to say about money. Um, the Bible says a fool and his money are easily parted. And that's so true, isn't it? We need advice. We need to be wise about money and that's why we have accountants and financial advisors and so on, people who can show us how we can maximise our income, how we can minimise our unnecessary expenses, how we can uh, kind of make things smooth over a long period of time so we can last the distance uh, economically. But our attitude towards money says something about what's actually on our hearts. 
Our world teaches us to have a very high, to place a very high value on money. Uh, the more that you have, the more that you can buy. And if you believe the advertising industry, the more you buy, the happier you'll be. By the way, how much money does it take to satisfy? Just a little bit more, thank you very much. Uh, we're constantly told about the must-have things that we just cannot do without in our lives. But what we really need is God's teaching on these things. As Christians, it is right for us to think biblically and in a gospel-centred way about this very important and very practical issue of life. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks, this week and the following three weeks. We're going to be trying to pull together just some of what the Bible uh, says about what I call money matters. Um, we're going to look at issues like the dangers of wealth. Uh, we're going to be thinking about that issue of worrying about money. We're going to be talking about having an attitude of generosity with our money. But what I want to do this morning is I want us to start by getting us to think about God and money, or as I've titled the sermon, uh, the goodness of God's creation. Now, to some extent, you might think, well, that's a bit of a strange place to start. Uh, most sermons I've heard on money, the preacher just goes straight for the issue of tithing. <laughs> You've been there, done that? Well, no, tithing's actually a very Old Testament concept and we have a much fuller view of giving than that. But we're going to start on the issue of God and his creation because over the, over the centuries, there are some Christians who've taught some, some wrong things about money and possessions. Uh, for example, one of the common teachings these days, and you sometimes hear, hear it referred to as the prosperity uh, gospel, uh, it's where uh, people say that, um, that, that, that money and lots of money is the evidence uh, that God is blessing you because you are a godly person. Now, money is always God's blessing, but uh, they go on to say that, uh, that if you are more godly, then God is going to give you more. You heard of that? Some of you have. So the size of your bank account is your spiritual barometer. It's easy to say when you live in Australia. The International Monetary Fund ranks us, according to gross domestic product, as number 10 in the world. You know what that means? That means there's about 170 countries underneath us. What does it say to the person living in Ethiopia? godly, faithful Christian person in Ethiopia when someone says, well, how wealthy you are is a barometer of your spirituality. Doesn't seem to match, does it? But you see, that's one area of false teaching. On the other hand, there are some people who have believed that money contaminates your relationship with God. Money and the things that it buys. So if you, if you want to be really close to God then stay away from money. As if money and material things are wrong. Um, some people actually talk about Christians taking a vow of poverty. 
was sitting with a very rich Christian once in his house. We're up in his second floor. We're in his, sitting in his second lounge room. We're overlooking his tennis court on one hand and his swimming pool on the other hand. He was telling me about his forthcoming six-month uh, tour around Europe with his family. And then he turned to me and he said to me that ministers take a vow of poverty. <laughs> Had to correct him on that one. Now, what does God think about money and possessions? Our starting point uh, is 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you'd like to have that open up in your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 4, you'll find that on page 840. And I'm going to read just a section of the passage that Barbara read for us earlier on. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 5, just to get us to focus on these verses where it says the spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is consecrated, if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Now, godly Christians should hate false teaching. Uh, if there is one advantage that I can think of as fa with false teaching is that false teaching helps you to sharpen up what you believe is true teaching. Is that right? You see the false helps you to really clearly articulate and define the true. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to his friend Timothy who was ministering in the church in Ephesus. And around that time, the flavour of the month on the false teaching menu uh, was a thing which, broadly speaking, was termed Gnosticism. You don't have to know too much about that term. But let me tell you what they taught. The Gnostics taught that, uh, that the universe was, was split between the spiritual and the material. And uh, spiritual things, well, they're good. Material things, well, they're evil. And so God is spirit, so God is good. Right? Uh, but material things like our bodies, uh, like some foods, like certain material possessions, well, they're evil. And so uh, the upshot of this is that some of them taught, and I've spoken about this before in church, that because the body is, doesn't matter so much, you can do whatever you want with your body. But on the other hand, the ex other extreme, there were some who taught that if you want to please God, then don't have anything to do with the material. Uh, don't have anything to don't partake in anything that gives you material or physical pleasure. I guess they were the fun police of the ancient world. Now it sounds like there were some of these guys who were hanging around the church in Ephesus, or at the very least, Paul thought that they were having some sort of an influence. Because have a look at verse eight. In verse verse three, rather, in verse three, Paul says they forbid people to marry. You can see the issue there, can't you? I mean, marriage involves physical pleasure. Can't have any of that. They forbid people to marry. Um, uh, they order people to abstain from certain foods. 
Now, in all likelihood, these were not Jewish uh, false teachers. and they, they were not talking about abstaining from certain Jewish foods. It was more like, no chocolate. <laughs> Don't enjoy your food. Um, just down the road from Ephesus was Colossae. And they had the same kind of false teaching that was going on in Colossae as well. If you, would you mind just turning in your Bibles back to Colossians for a moment? Um, Colossians, you'll find... Oh, it's back... Um, go to page 834. Let me read Colossians 2, verses 21 to 23. I'll start at verse 20. That's easier, I think. Colossians 2, verse 21. Everyone got that? Page 834. Okay. Um, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and, get this, their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The Colossians were being told, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Doesn't sound like much fun, does it? And that, notice what it said about harsh treatment of the body. As if somehow you get closer to God by doing harsh things with your body. Um, actually, this is interesting because a, a couple of centuries later, in the 3rd century and, and in the 4th century, uh, the, the Christian monastic movement developed. Um, monks, monasteries, that sort of thing. And uh, the monks would, would often be men who would withdraw from, uh, from society. They would withdraw from the city and they would go and live... Uh, harsh lives under difficult conditions uh, in the desert. Now, in fairness, some of them did this for a very good reason that we might actually see value in. Uh, They believed that by withdrawing from the uh, society that they could evaluate society a little bit more clearly and they could go back into the cities and they could call on people to repent and they could do uh, good deeds as well. So there's good work that was done by some of these monks. But they weren't all like that. Some of them uh, believed that by withdrawing from uh, all of the material and the physical pleasures of the city, going out and treating themselves really harshly in the desert, that uh, they could draw closer to God. They'd be more spiritual if they did that. For example... Anyone heard of St. Cyril? Some of you have. Anna's heard of St. Cyril. Let's test Anna here. (laughs) Ah, Okay. Well, St. Cyril, he lived out in the desert for 30 years. What was his accommodation like? Do you remember, Anna? Did he live in a tent? Michelle got it in one. He lived on top of a pole. There was this big pole out in the desert and if you looked up the top of the pole, there was St. Cyril 
living there for 30 years. Now, they thought he was a hero. They thought he was a spiritual giant. They thought he was the most godly. They made him a saint. People would go out to the desert and they'd look up and they'd see Saint Cyril sitting on his pole. Friends, they aspired to do these things and they revered people because they had this view that rejected the good things that money could buy. Now, what does the Bible say about this sort of thing? Well, let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 again. Verse 3, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. See, who created the foods? God. Thank you. You can write that in your bulletins there as well on the dots. Everything God created is and nothing is to be and it is to be received with thanksgiving. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? It's just basic stuff, but it makes sense that uh, in our thinking about possessions and pleasures that money should play a big part in that because money is a tangible form of power. Uh, Think about it this way. Money simply represents the stored ability to do things. It gives us the ability to pay for a house, the ability to pay for nice food, the ability to pay for whatever. Um, People who say that money and wealth are somehow bad have made a very serious blunder. They've forgotten what the Bible says about creation. Uh, In Genesis 1 to 3, it was God who made everything and when he saw what he made, he said that it was all good. Uh, Psalm 24 says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 50 verse 10 says, uh, God says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills and it's not just the cattle in the land. In Haggai chapter 2 verse 8, God says the silver and the gold and the gold, they're all mine. Friends, everything in the world, including our wealth and our possessions, comes from the hand of God and is therefore good. Now it's pretty simple stuff, but why is this so important for us to grasp? Well, firstly, I doubt that there'd be anyone here, I might be wrong, but I don't I know you guys reasonably well, and as far as I haven't come across any of you here who believe that you have to shun material possessions and pleasures in order to become more godly. In fact, I think our problem is more likely to be the opposite of that. Um, The truth of the matter is that when Jesus taught about uh, sin, and when he warned about sin, he warned about sins connected with money more than any other kind of sin. And so next week, what I want us to do is I want us to look at the negative side of, of, of these things. Of the, I want us to look at the deceitfulness of wealth, uh, the danger of putting God before money, money before God. 
at the danger of idolatry. But it would be very unbalanced for us to simply look at all of the dangers of money without first setting it in the context that everything that we have is truly a blessing from God and ought to be received with thanksgiving. That's the first thing. Secondly, in 1 Timothy 4 verse 4, Paul says, everything God created is good and nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, when we truly appreciate that everything that we've been that we have <clears throat> is a gift from the hand of God then that realization which a lot of people live without that realization by the way they don't appreciate they don't when we have that appreciation it liberates us it is deeply liberating and it's liberating in a couple of ways that I can think of. Firstly, we are liberated from being discontent. We become more content. We become more thankful for what we have. Have you got your iPhone 4S as yet? Oh, come on, what, what's the matter with you? It was released on Friday. Didn't you see it on the news? No. I mean, it was, uh, you know, people, people camped out outside the, the uh, Apple stores, that is the bricks and mortar stores, had camped out there for hours and they pressed against the glass windows, you know, like what kids do when a Harry Potter thing's being released. <laughs> just waiting for the doors to be opened up so they could rush to the counter and buy their, their phone. Maybe even be the first person in Australia to make a phone call on an iPhone 4S or take a photo with it. You haven't got yours yet. Makes you wonder what they think of their old iPhone. Makes you wonder what what they're going to do with their old iPhone. Makes you wonder what they'll do when the iPhone 5 comes out. <laughs> Sometimes, though, we do need to change the things that we own. And sometimes that means upgrading. Sometimes it means downgrading, particularly downsizing. But if God has given me an asset even when it no longer suits my needs. I'm not going to despise it. I'm not going to think it was rubbish. I'll thank him for it, even as I hand it over to someone else. And so, can I encourage you during this week to do a bit of a, a, bit of a stock take? A stock take on all of the things that God has given you. And instead of maybe grumbling about the house that isn't quite as big as you'd like it to be or the car that maybe breaks down a bit too often and isn't as new as it could be, whatever it is, instead humble yourself 
and say to God, thank you, Father, for caring for me so well. Can we do that? Finally, to know that all things are a gift from God ought to liberate us from a selfish attitude towards our possessions. When we acknowledge that everything that we have has been given to us by God who owns those things anyway, then we're not going to hold on to those things so tightly as if we somehow deserve them. We'll actually be a bit looser with the things that we own. A bit more willing to give those things up if we need to for the sake of the gospel. A bit more willing to be generous to others who might need our help. And you know, friends, when we think about God's greatest gift to us, the gift of his own son, Jesus, who came and who died for our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that we can have a relationship with God, then it's not just going to be letting go possessions. We don't want to let go in the grip of our lives and give our whole lives over to serving this great God who provides for us so well materially and spiritually, gives us that relationship with him that comes not through uh, getting away from money and material possessions, but that relationship that comes through coming close to his own son, Jesus. But for now, let's just pray. Let me lead us in prayer about this really important issue. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are such a good creator, uh, that you have given us this planet that uh, is so perfect for, uh, for life and for enjoyment. Father, we thank you for the way that you've provided for us, um, not only spiritually but materially as well, for all the things that we have. And we pray, Father God, that we would not hold so tightly to those things, but rather that uh, we would have a godly attitude. Father, we're thankful. We pray that you would help us to find contentment. And we pray, Lord God, that uh, in all that we do and how we use what you've given us, that you would be honoured and glorified. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.